Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors. The podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And I'm Sophie Robinson. And if you feel like you don't know what day it is, can't tell which way is up and are starting to wonder if there really is light at the end of the tunnel, we can help. In today's show, we'll be speaking to the leading psychotherapist, Julia Samuel, about the challenges of lockdown and how we can tackle them, and crucially, the role that is played by our surroundings. And it's not just whether you know which way is up, do you know which way your rooms face? Because it makes a big difference to your decorating. The secrets of designing according to the compass will be revealed. And in our style surgery, we will be, well, I'm hijacking it, actually. This is a hold-up. I've got a style surgery dilemma and I'm nervous about asking Sophie to solve it. Actually, I may just be a little kind of out loud talking to myself conversation. That's um, not how the style surgery uh, goes. <laughs> hey, well, this right. You know it. I've got my opinions at the ready. Can't wait to find out what it is. Uh, well, let's see how that goes. Anyway, I think we better carry on with the show. So, never eat shredded wheat. I beg your pardon? Don't you know that one? North, east, south, west. Little mnemonic to help the school kids remember which way they go. I think you'll find it's naughty elephant squirt water. Ooh, no, I hadn't heard that one. But this is all very, very useful when it comes to the complexity of choosing colours. Because as I'm always ranting on, you can't just pick up a paint chart and pop any colour. There are so many different considerations and which way your room is facing its aspect. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, we talk about North, South, East, West facing rooms with North being uh, cool light and South having all that lovely sunshine. I'm not wrong, am I, in thinking that people in the Southern Hemisphere, it's switched the other way. Is that right? Um, I think um, my son's currently doing this in science. I could go and ask him. He's only nine years old. There's definitely, in the Southern Hemisphere, the light is kind of harsher and brighter than in the sort of, you know, the Northern Hemisphere. It's, it's got that sort of rain-washed effect to it, hasn't it? It's all a bit softer over here. And I also want to say, you know, don't be frightened. This is not a sort of mathematical, scientific thing. You know, it's a couple of things to bear in mind when you're picking a colour. And put oh, very... Oh, no, 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 this is very, this is very mathematical and serious. I've got, my, uh, I've got my glasses on. I've got my lab coat on. I'm taking it very seriously, Kate. <laughs> right. Um, well, I, I don't want listeners to worry that it's going to become complicated, <laughs> even though Sophie's got a lab coat on. Um, the point, very simply is the light in a north-facing room will be constant but cool. And so effectively, if you pick a cool colour like a lilac or a grey or a blue, it might make the room look colder because you're putting a blue light on top of it. So that's really what you need to think about. And obviously, we're going to talk about the rooms in order. But when we come to south-facing rooms, the opposite will be true. And, you know, a south-facing room will warm up a colour. So in a north-facing room, 
You want to try and avoid colours which have a blue or a green base. And, you know, it can be hard if you're just looking at that to know. But these days, lots of the paint charts will tell you, certainly on the sort of more premium paints like Farrenborn, Little Green, Earthborn, they will give you a clue as to the sort of base colour of your paint. And so well, actually, you like to do quite a lot of this as well, to be fair. They do, actually. I saw something mm. with them. They write about it. So there are, you know, there are ways of knowing whether you're picking a warm or a cool colour. Well, it's basically your cool colours have got sort of grey and blue in the background and you want to be picking a colour that's got some yellow in its base, which makes it feel warmer. So maybe things like good old bit of magnolia or a crew, your stone neutrals. And then moving through into more of a duck egg blue, for example, that's got a little bit more yellow in it. Or more of a yellowy green. Olive green is a good one. And, you know, I would say, I mean, obviously I have banned white paint several times on this podcast, but I would say that a small, dark, north-facing room is absolutely not to be painted white because it will just look sort of drab and depressing. You need, you know, as Sophie says, a warm white, even if you don't want to go quite as far as peachy magnolia. There is one paint by Dulux called Light and Space, which is sort of has light reflective particles in it. So if you're absolutely wedded to the idea of a bright white room, then maybe look for something like that in your north-facing room. Yeah, I've never used that paint before. They claim it reflects up to twice the amount of light, which is, that's quite a claim, isn't it? I'd love to that know if any of our listeners have used it and had success with it. The thing is, if you you try it and it's not good enough there are ways around it you know if you've painted your north facing room in a soft shade of gray and it's gone lilac or cold or just a bit depressing and you can't face painting again you can warm it up with your furniture so for example i had this in my north facing kitchen if you add a wooden worktop or if you've got a wooden table or if it's in a sitting room and you bring in sort of warm pink cushions and things, those colours will pick up on the warm colours around it and reflect back because, of course, the key is you never see a colour in isolation. So you can warm up a cold room by using warmer colours if you can't face painting it again and you're on your 45th tester pot. (laughs) Well, the other thing to think about too is, of course, that because the light is softer and more diffused, I mean, it's kind of reflected light in a north-facing room rather than direct light, is to ramp up some contrast because otherwise a room can just look really sort of beige and bland. And I know a lot of people are really drawn to the very pale, light reflective colours in north facing rooms in an attempt to make them feel lighter and brighter. But there's another way to tackle it, and it's to embrace the darkness, which is what I've done in my kitchen. My kitchen's north facing too, and it looks over the cars parked outside as well. So even the view isn't that exciting. We don't have any light <laughs> reflected back into the into the space. So I've just embraced the fact that it's a dark room. Interestingly, when we bought the house, it was painted like a really pale primrose yellow. Oh God, Ooh. it was just horrendous. Yeah, it just didn't work. It just, it was like an attempt to make the room look sunny and it just didn't pull it off. So I've gone for a really dark green in there. And the intense colour kind of helps create a bit of depth. And then a really high contrast, busy, perky wallpaper to kind of bring the whole thing to light. And then your point as well about punctuating it with accents, it's got the bright pink cushions that I've pulled out in the seating area. And then I've contrasted the cool green with like a terracotta floor and a warm, ready wood Oroco worktop. And again, they that warm terracotta sort of contrasts with the dark green. And it just means that the whole room comes alive. 
and the patterns bringing the interest and the contrast where the where the sunlight isn't doing that job? Well, I've had similar. My kitchen is also north facing and it's almost quite a sort of tunnel because we've got an extension on the back and obviously it's a terraced house. So there's no windows at the side, you know, so the only natural light is coming from the back and a bit of a skylight. And when we moved in, we painted it in a sort of off-white which wasn't cold, but we had a stainless steel worktop and it was quite a sort of clinical space. And then we painted it in a farrow and ball colour called Cornforth White, which I thought was going to be a really pretty sort of pinky dove grey. And actually it was exactly everything we've talked about. It was just kind of meh and a bit miserable. That's when I started putting wooden boards up on the worktop and adding more colours to the open shelves, you know, to try and counteract it because I couldn't face painting it again. But it just sort of didn't work. And now the walls are mostly a very, very pale pink and the cupboards are chocolate brown and it's much, much warmer and you sort of don't feel like it's a cold north-facing room anymore. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. It's interesting about that Cornforth white because it is a really pretty colour and it's lovely in south-facing rooms. I've used it in south-facing rooms. There's another colour, actually, and I always sort of think about this as the example of two colours that change. So two sort of people I know live near me and one painted her house pretty much all over in elephant's breath and I remember going round and saying well this is the most beautiful colour it's a farrow and ball elephant's breath I mean you know clues in the name it is a sort of soft grey and it looked really pretty in her house and then uh, I went to another friend's house and she just redecorated and I said oh this is a pretty colour what is it it's a sort of creamy beige colour and she said oh it's elephant's breath by farrow and ball and where she'd put it was in a south facing room so In a north-facing room, it became a very nice warm grey. In a south-facing room, with that sort of yellower light on it, it basically turned into beige. So you can get the most enormous difference between the orientation of the rooms. Yeah, which is why you absolutely must buy a tester pot and don't put a tiny little square on the wall. Get the whole pot of paint out, do a massive swatch. I always use um, lining paper or a big piece of board, you know, so you've got a nice sort of, I don't know, metre square swatch of colour and then move it around the room because also the colour will look different in different walls. It will look different on the wall opposite the window as it will to in the alcove behind the chimney breast. And it'll look different in the morning as it does in the evening. So having a really big swatch so you can understand how the colour changes throughout the day is, of course, another consideration. Well, and also painting across a corner because, of course, the colours reflect back on themselves. I mean, people talk about Mm. painting a shoebox. I mean, obviously, that's not necessarily in the scale of the room, but you will see how a colour will deepen into a corner. So really, I suppose... In summary, it's make sure the colour has a bit of warmth to it, unless yeah. you want, otherwise it could make your north-facing room feel chilly. Avoid pure brilliant white, because that's got a lot of blue in it and is actually a very cold colour. Yeah. Um, or embrace it and go really dark. Oh, actually, on that note as well, um, I think artificial light is really important in whatever room you're designing, but more so in a north-facing room. And I know, for example, in my kitchen, which is, you know, wraparound dark colour, I've got two rings of electric down lighters. I've got lighting in the alcove over the cooker, lighting on the worktop and a lamp. And it's all quite a small kitchen, actually. But it means that I can create lots of pools and texture 
with my lighting rather than just having overhead lighting in a wash. I think that's something that can help a north-facing room feel like it's got a little bit more depth and character. Well, and of course, crucially, you know, when you're choosing paint colours, you must look at them in the natural light. And then if that's the room you're in in the evening, how do they change under what might well be a more sort of yellow or warm electric bulb? So do check mm. that because certainly greens and blues can change a huge amount depending on the light you throw at them. So that's also worth checking. And one last thing to think about in north facing rooms, it doesn't even involve paint is your window treatments. This can make a massive difference. And usually in a north facing room, whether you decorate it dark or light, you want to try and suck as much of that daylight in as you possibly can. So think about hanging Roman blinds above the reveal rather than inside the recess. If you've got curtains, make sure the poles are long enough so the curtains can be pulled all the way back. And another little trick is to keep your window sills and even the frames white or an off-white and in a gloss paint because that can help bounce the light back into the room. So obviously we've dealt with a, a lot of the issues of north and south kind of overlap. It's sort of the opposite. But I remember when I wanted to redecorate my bedroom and we were looking for, there was a lot of to and fro about the colour, but eventually we agreed that we would have what we thought was going to be a sort of blush pink. And we and this must, is in your south-facing bedroom. This is in my south-facing bedroom. We must have had 20 samples on the wall. And, you know, I wouldn't normally do that many. I would have given up before, but I didn't know what other colour to paint it. So we kept on going, this will be the one, this will be the one. And the sun streams into that bedroom. You know, if it's out, it's in there all day. And all these colours were turning into peach and coral. And it was like a sort of 1980s peachy palace. And I, I just couldn't bear it. So we gave up and we left it with, with paint samples all over the wall for about a year. And then I discovered this colour by Mylands called Threadneedle. And I remember reading the description and it said, this is a sort of cool pink with violet undertones. And I was like, oh, I hate violet. Oh, I don't know about that. Put it on the wall in my south-facing room. And that was the one because it needed the sort of cool tone of the paint to react against this sort of really hot golden light. And that became the perfect shade of pink. Ah, oh, fascinating. It was. I was shocked by how much of a difference it made. And I'd been through all the sort of setting plasters and calamines and, you know, all those other colours. they were just colours. too peachy. They were too peachy. Going, they were too brown. Yeah. They were just a bit sickly. And actually this very cool pink, which... I would have discounted because I thought, oh, it's blue. I don't want a bluey type of pink. Turned out to be perfect. So sometimes when you're choosing a colour, if you've got a room that is, you know, very strongly north or very strongly south, decide on the, the sort of base colour you want, be it blue or be it green or be it pink, and then look towards the opposite end of the spectrum to kind of counterbalance what the natural light might do to it. So as I say, I looked for a sort of violety pink for my south-facing room and in my north-facing room, I would pick a warmer pink with sort of stronger browner undertones. And have you done that in your office then? Because your office is um, north-facing. What pink have you got in there? Oh, well, it's from the new Little Green Stone collection. It's called Ferdinand. And actually, it's a very sort of warm cream. But because I've oh, painted the panelling... Well, it's because I've painted the panelling in their colour called Arras, which is a sort of earthy burgundy red, I think is, there's a reflection up 
which turns oh, it into a soft a pink. Thinking. It's a north-facing room and it is now, these are very warm colours. And actually, when it was my 17-year-old's bedroom, he insisted on having it in this blue shade, uh, which is a lovely shade of blue. It's one of the skies from Little Green. And then he wanted a grey carpet. And he always complained about being cold. It's really interesting because I'm sure it was the decor that made it cold. And now suddenly mm. I've got this kind of earthy red and cream ceiling and, you know, nothing's happened apart from the paint colours changed. You know, it's it's not been any more sealed or, you know. You've not put extra heating in there. It just feels warmer because of the colour. Yeah. So there's that psychological element as well. God, how fascinating. I think south-facing rooms are one of the only rooms where you can, you know, white can really work, I think, and those quite minimal room schemes that's not myself obviously for some people I mean I think of you know those sort of like that real Californian cool that very white on white and cream on cream minimalist look that I think is really tricky to replicate over here because we don't have all that sunshine but it looks amazing in that Californian sun you know because you've got the light to cast the shadows to add the interest so it's a, it is a lot, lot easier to design a south-facing room. You can sort of do what you want, though, can't you? Because, you know, a south-facing room will have plenty of natural light. So you can take it dark if you want. You know, my sitting room is south-facing. It's got chocolate brown walls. You know, it's still mm. a really light room, even, well, not in the depths of winter. Let's be honest, nothing's light. But, you know, I don't need to put the lights on there in the daytime because it's got lots of natural light, it can take the dark colour. But equally, I originally had it painted in a sort of off-white and it was still a really light room. You know, you it's much easier. Much easier. Although I would, uh, on the side of caution, with the very bright, you know, my kind of palette and my love of bright colours, you have to be quite careful. North-facing rooms actually take bright colours really well because they can, you know, the dullness kind of like takes the energy down, makes them look a bit more sophisticated. But you can end up looking like you're in Mr. Tumble's house if you're not too... <laughs> that's a children's TV show here in the UK for anyone who's wondering what I'm talking about. You might, you can need sunglasses, can't you, with those bright colours mm, with the really sun on them. Ramp up. Yeah, can be a bit mm. much. I mean, in my bedroom, my bedroom's um, south-facing, and I've actually yet to properly decorate it, but when we moved in, I had to get rid of the beige. So I painted it in smalt, which is a very deep cobalt blue it's a little green color but it's got quite a bit of black in it it's quite a cold blue one could say considering it's so bright um, but that works really well in the bedroom because I didn't want something too energizing in the bedroom it's just a really lovely deep blue so I think if you do love the brights consider airing towards one of the colors that have got a little bit of black in them unless you want it to feel really vivacious and uplifting, maybe in a bathroom or something that could work. So this is all kind of very well. I can hear people saying, OK, I get it with the north and the south. Those are quite easy. What happens when you've got those either east or west or the sort of northwest or southeast, which is a mixture of cool and warm? How do we deal with those? Well, I think essentially uh, with east facing rooms, you get the lovely morning light. You start getting light at different times of the day, don't you? Yeah. So I've got my offices east facing and it's perfect for that. It's a really lovely room to be in in the morning. And I can never, ever, ever forget Trini Woodall, who we interviewed in one of our earliest podcasts, the beauty expert, saying that east light is the most flattering for applying your makeup and indeed doing any Zoom meetings. <laughs> And I won't 
deny that. And I know this now. And whenever I'm doing my videos or taking pictures, I always make sure I'm in my east-facing office. Do and like, you? Oh, the skin is so gla Yeah, always. Always That's in my so office. interesting because I live in a terraced house. I've only got windows north and south. I haven't oh, got any east Kate, or west. It's a disaster. I have to move house. Yeah. <laughs> now that we all live on Zoom, <laughs> now that Zoom is the new way of life, I'm going to have to move. I'm going to get me some well, east-facing light. <laughs> Or just use lots of, I don't know, highlighter blush or something. You see, that's why I'd forgotten that she said it, because it just so yeah. was so far it removed really from anything makes I could a do. Difference. That's fascinating. It really makes a difference. Yeah. Whenever I've got to do um, any videos, which obviously I do a lot of video content, it always works so much better. I sit right in front of my French doors in my office, right there, get all that lovely east-facing light on my mm. face and just wait for all the comments to come in and people going, oh my God, what did you do for your daily regimen? Your skin's so amazing. Oh my God. Well, this clearly, people, is why I never do any video content because I've only got very direct north or south and it ain't nice. It ain't pretty, people. We're not seeing it. So there we go. East for flattering and morning light. Yes, and obviously, I suppose, and West, you're going to have that warm evening light, aren't you? Isn't there? Is it an American yes. thing where they talk about golden hour, where the sun is setting oh, okay. and everything's bathed in that sort of warm golden light? So, you know, your West-facing rooms are going to have that as well. I mean, in an ideal world, if one was building a house and planning out themselves, it would be great, wouldn't it? You could make sure your makeup room was in the East, you know, your living room was in the South. Your office probably where you want more of a retiring and relaxing feel was in the north, but that's not our reality. So use colour, use artificial lighting, wool sconces, table lamps, down lighters to help create the feeling and the vibe that you want. Do you know, there was, I did have a story. We once worked on a magazine and a reader wrote in because we'd published a picture of a purple kitchen. It was like aubergine. And, you know, as per usual, always credited the supplier of the paint. I think it was a Dulux colour. Anyway, she'd just gone out and bought the paint, spent the whole weekend painting her kitchen. But it was a completely different colour in reality than it looked like in the photograph in the magazine. And she was furious and she was trying to sue us to redecorate her kitchen. But... The reality is by the time you've seen an image in a magazine and it's the photographer's taken the picture and he's altered the colours and then it's totally. gone through the printing process and that's altered the colours and that kitchen might have a completely different aspect to your home. So, you know, I don't think uh, we did pay her damages, but let's all learn from her lesson, shall we? And not just randomly copy a colour that we've seen in a magazine or on Instagram. Always test it yourself. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today we discuss technical diagramming with systems architect Maya. Let's go. First question. You've spent 10 hours slogging over a sequence diagram that should have taken five. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board. And if I'm being honest, Miro would probably cut that time down by half. You know, with its AI tools and ready-to-go templates. Next, your diagrams become so bulky, it's more complex than the solar system. But all it takes is a few clicks and... It's Miro. I've used those technical shape packs way too many times. And stuff is just digestible on its infinite online canvas. Now, the final question. Everyone's brought in. But you have to make all these tasks all the way over in Jira. But wait, it's done. Is it... Miro. Easy with its two-way Jira sync. Easy to plot dependencies. Everyone always knows what's up. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people creating technical diagrams without workflow glitches. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. 
Julia Samuel is a prominent psychotherapist who has worked in the NHS and private practice for 30 years. She has done pioneering work specifically around grief and bereavement and how we deal with change and has written two best-selling books, most recently, This Too Shall Pass, Stories of Change, Crisis and Hopeful Beginnings. Actually, even reading that title makes me feel better. This Too Shall Pass was published with quite uncanny timing in March last year, and it has led to Julia becoming almost the unofficial therapist of the pandemic. So, Julia, in your capacity as coronavirus counsellor, how's the mental health of the nation now as we sit in our third lockdown? I'm afraid it is dropping on a daily basis. I mean, there is definitely a shadow pandemic to the COVID pandemic, which is a mental health one. I think in particular with young people, their anxiety levels have gone up 10 or 15%. I think every aspect of life has become more difficult for people. And if people had pre-existing anxieties or disorders, they've got worse. If there were fractures and difficulties in relationships and in family households, those have got worse. Because as human beings, we're social animals. We're born and wired to connect. And the single biggest, most universal aspect of lives that enable us to deal with difficulty is love and connection, is being social. So the social distancing and the, you know, retreating from life and being within the four walls of our family has affected everybody. I don't think there's a person in the land that in some way or at some point in this last nine months has suffered. Everybody has suffered. We're all hit by it, aren't we? And This notion that we're sort of work and school and life is all happening in the same four walls. I think what's difficult is boundaries. You know, we need to engage, switch on, connect, do something and then step back, move and step into something else. And a lot of people are working, eating, fighting, having laughter, dancing in the kitchen. You know, they've got one place in the house, but they're all competing for space and for Wi-Fi data. And of course, there are different people from different aspects of life who are finding it much worse than others. People who are losing their jobs, losing where they're living, relationships ending. And then people say, well, I, you know, I'm so lucky. I, I feel guilty that I'm complaining. And actually, I think that's unhelpful because I think we need to do two things. I think we need to voice and own what we feel, that our emotions are information transmitters. They're there to give us information that we have to pay attention to. So we have to kind of look at the dark and name it and allow it and find a way of kind of expressing it and then take a breath and turn our attention to the light of things that we're grateful for, things that we can look forward to, of things that do give us pleasure, that we can choose to do, that strengthen us, that give us joy. And so we have some agency, even within the framework of the pandemic, of how low our mood goes. And that, you know, everything that you put into your system, everything you watch, listen to, eat, move, don't move, who you speak to, all of that affects your mood. So if you do that mindfully in a way that builds resilience, you will surf the waves of it much better. But as I say in the book, you can't fight this. A lot of people want to have control. And I think if there's any a time that we've learned that fundamentally we have no control over things that matter to us most, is now. 
and that we need to kind of have that paradoxical relationship with change is that the more you accept the aspects of life that you cannot change, the more likely it is that change will occur. But when you try and block it and resist it and fight it, and you can do that with a kind of ruminating self-speak in your head, then you really make your situation worse. That's so true. I think we've all been sort of fighting it out loud, but also in our heads. And there is a sort of maybe it's like the stages of grief. We've got to get to acceptance. This is where we are. And as you say, search for what what we've called elsewhere in the podcast, the sort of small wins. This I can control. This makes me happy. Talking of the sort of small wins within the house, we obviously this is a, a podcast about interiors. And we find that, you know, design can be a very important part in establishing boundaries between yourself and the rest of the family. You know, I've sort of only half joked about how I think this pandemic will be the end of open plan living because, you know, we've suddenly realised that we need walls and they're very important. I mean, do you feel that our homes can obviously support us, but can they work against us as well? I mean, there's quite a lot of psychological research about what we can see and and our surroundings so that, for instance, when hospitals put in brighter colour pictures and improve the quality of the decoration in a hospital, people get better quicker. So your surroundings has a big impact on your mood. But also in a family system, you need boundaries. So you need time where you can connect and communicate and be close. And you need time out where you can be on your own and talk to your friends or just read a book or do the other things that you want to do on your own. So space makes a big difference. And that makes a big difference to your psychological space. So if you're living in a small area and there aren't the walls, you need to create rituals and habits that mark boundaries in your day. So, I mean, I was speaking to someone the other day and what he does is he's got a small flat that he shares with his wife and his baby and he puts on his coat, he goes out the door, he walks around the block, he comes back up, he takes his coat off, he goes into the corner of the room and he works and then at the end of the day he puts his coat on, comes around and then comes back up and it sounds kind of mad but our bodies, remember, our bodies hold the school so when he puts his coat on to go out... It presses the button, going to work. And then in the reverse, in the evening, going home button turns on. And that is a very nice, simple boundary that doesn't take a lot of effort. You don't have to have a lot of willpower. It's an action and a bodily movement that mark the beginning and the end of a, of a work day. And I think when there's this bleeding between work and home, both really suffer. We have to stop and restore and step back in order to start again. Uh, That's so interesting. That reminds me first of a sketch that came out at the beginning of the last lockdown where an Italian couple were having this blazing row where he said he was going to go out for a coffee and she said, you can't, you're not allowed. And he stormed out of the house saying, I can do what I like. And then you saw him walk round to the kitchen window, which was open and order a coffee (laughs) through the window. But it was that sort of notion that he was just escaping and going somewhere else. And what would you say in terms of practical tips you could give listeners that they can do in their homes? Is there anything they can do with the way the furniture looks or is arranged to help with this situation which shows no sign of ending at the moment? I think the first thing is as a family to have your own kind of COBRA meeting. 
and talk about your strengths and weaknesses together. What drives each other mad? And what space do you need as a family? You know, if you have a 17-year-old who wants to do yoga, who wants to talk to their friends, doesn't want to eat your food, how can you include him to be part of the menus, maybe do the food order with you, maybe cook supper a couple of nights a week, so that you collaborate together? And if this becomes a shared problem with your flatmates or with your family members, then everybody feels they have a voice and a part to play. They're not being done to. So if you're in a small space where your teenager needs his own space, even if it's a yoga mat, have that as his space and nobody can go there and agree how you're going to use the time together. Agree times that are likely to be tense times where you're all fighting for bandwidth or how you can negotiate that with each other. But each individual needs to have a structure for their day that's a flexible one, not like a police state, but is... Like you have to go outside every day, whatever the weather, even if it's only 10 or 15 minutes, you have to do something that gives you a feeling of kind of purpose that you've done something, whether it's your chores, whatever it is. I think we all need to have achieved something so that we can say that's our mini win for the day. And we each need something that inspires us, like listening to music or something that sort of feeds our soul, even again, if it's very short, and we need connection. So whether it's within the family or making a time for a friend. And what we know from all the research is that willpower doesn't make this happen, it's emotion. So keep those tasks small, because then you what builds habits is both hobby horsing them onto a pre-existing one, like connecting it with after you clean your teeth, you go for a quick bit of fresh air and then come back and then have your breakfast. So then you don't kind of question it. But also when you do it, you feel good about it. And feeling good about it has a much stronger ability to embed it in you than willpower, which is quite brittle. I mean, I've heard a lot in lockdown, and it's certainly been true of me, what things look like. So I've had a lot of furniture repaired I've recovered armchairs. I've painted rooms myself. I bought some new lampshades. I made some cushions. So small things can give you pleasure that can be a kind of pop of colour where you were fed up of looking at something. Buying flowers, I think, has an amazing source of delight. (laughs) You know, just having them on the kitchen table in a jar can be such a simple pleasure that really helps. Lighting candles, I think, really helps. Have you found your taste has changed at all? I spent most of the first lockdown fantasising about painting my kitchen yellow and and yellow is a colour I really don't like. Um, (laughs) Have you surprised yourself at all by the choices you've been making for your interiors? I'm quite a bit older than you, so I'm a bit more, more set in my ways. I think what I'm surprised is how much... So I'm writing another book, so... I mind so much about order. So I sit down and I start writing and then I look up and I see the clock isn't quite centred on the mantelpiece, so I have to go and centre it. Then I have to move the chair. Then I have to move the other chair. Then I can't find the cushion because the dog has taken it or something. So I can't, you know, I need order, external order to help match an inner calm to concentrate. And if it's too chaotic, like people often, when they're very unhappy, they sort out their clothes and their cupboards. A lot of people have done a lot of clearing out. And there is something cathartic about that, a sense of sort of Marie Kondo internal order if you sort out your knicker drawer and colour code your jerseys. I think that can help. 
it's just about getting some sense of control, isn't it? When there's no control yeah. outside, you've got to try and control what's within your walls. I think, I mean, the, if I only had one message, would be that love is strong medicine and that with all of our surroundings and all the other choices we have, that's what we need to prioritise. Because when people look back at this lockdown and when they look back at their lives, the thing that matters to them most is their love and connection to others. Thank you so much to Julia Samuel, whose book, This Too Shall Pass, is out now. We'd love to know what you made of that interview and what is keeping you going, interiors or otherwise. Do come and find us on Instagram, where I'm Sophie Robinson Interiors and she's mad about the house. And of course, check out the fabulous Facebook group, The Great Indoors Podcast. And now it's time for our style surgery. I say our style surgery. This week, I'm hijacking it. It's my <laughs> style surgery. So, as we may have mentioned once or twice, I have swapped rooms with my 17-year-old son. Basically, he had this very tiny north-facing room at the back of the house. It's about eight foot by six foot. And I had obviously my slightly bigger office with the gold ceiling pictures on the show notes for those who didn't know about it. And we promised him about a year ago that we would swap rooms so he could have all this space to study for his A-levels, which of course now have been cancelled. But he held me to that. So I've just finished the decorating. And if you were listening at the top, I've painted it in a kind of deep burgundy panelling and this soft cream ceiling. And I've got no window dressing and I'm suddenly feeling the need. I've spent too much time with Sophie. I fancy a curtain and I've got <laughs> no curtains in my house and I don't really know how to start. I'm thinking one curtain because two is too many for such a small room, but I don't know. Sophie, help me. Oh, well, you've got such a lovely window, haven't you? It's a beautiful sash window yeah um which and in a small room you see traditionally in a small room I probably say oh you know go for a Roman blind but I love the fact that you're embracing a more maximalist approach and maybe are you feeling like you need a bit of swag you need a bit of softness well steady steady make- steady <laughs> I mean we're not there'll be no pelmets I was thinking back. <laughs> no, no one may have gone off the whole idea now I was thinking because it's a small room that there would be perhaps one curtain floor length, which would just be pulled back Mm. to one side most of the time. Is that weird? Can I have a single curtain? Are you going to puddle on the floor or... um, Oh, to puddle. There's probably not enough room on the floor to puddle. If I puddle, (laughs) the cat will probably sleep on it. I'm thinking skim, floor skim. Floor skim. No, I think it's a lovely idea. And I think, yeah, you could absolutely... Oh, it's north facing, isn't it? So you want to make sure as we said at the top of the show, you want a nice long pole so you can pull it all the way back to let the light into the room. Um, So yes, I agree, sort of swags and pelmets aren't going to really work. They'd cut like half the light out, wouldn't they? But you could go for a really beautiful decorative pole over there. That would be really in keeping with the house. I think that could look really nice. 
I mean, if it was me, I'd go for something really beautiful and sumptuous and interlined. And, you know, again, with it being a north facing house, it means that in the winter when you draw the curtains, it'll feel really cozy in there and really snug. I mean, I'm really channeling this kind of like study vibe that you've got going on in there. It feels very book nook, kind of writer's corner. I think you should really embrace the small proportions. So the pattern, though, I wanted something kind of big. I mean, first of all, can we just finish that conversation about how you told me I should paint the whole room red ceiling as well? And I haven't. Mm. Yes, I was Um, right. Yes. Well, whether you were right or not, I'm not, that's, that's up for debate. But actually it does work. It does work with the light colour above. And uh, the colours you've chosen are just so delicious. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. That beautiful, beautiful sort of rich clarity red on the bottom. And in the gloss finish as well, it's like super, super lovely. And it does feel quite light in there. And I guess if you're in there all day writing, it's nice to maximise the feeling of light. So I get it. I get it. But I think, yeah, it's time to cosy up and make it feel a bit more lavish. So you can do that completely by adding the fabric. You've already got an armchair in there, haven't you? Is that like a blush pink velvet? Yeah, that's a plain velvet. So I'm quite up for pattern. I'd always fancied stripes, but the mad husband walked in the other day and said, if I had stripes, it would look like a Ralph Lauren shop. And I kind of see where he's coming from. So I think stripes is out because I had been secretly fantasising about mattress ticking. But I think I want to go a bit more full on floral. Can't believe well, I've I just said that. Well, I think you've got to really kind of like deep dive and find out what is your pattern personality, Kate Watson Smythe. You know, are you a ticking stripe? Are you a leopard print? Are you I'm a not a leopard floral? print. <laughs> I, I didn't even hear the rest of that sentence. <laughs> you were coughing. In disc- yeah. So I think, you know, if you're going to have one pattern in the room, which it sounds like it is going to be the only pattern. Maybe you've got some pattern rugs in there too, maybe. Yeah. But I think, yeah, you've got to do a bit of soul searching. What sums you up in a pattern? I think it's something quite stormy. (laughs) (laughs) I was conjuring to mind. I'll tell you what I want. Do Fornacetti do fabric? I want that Fornacetti fabric, which is like storm clouds. Maybe I'll just have black and white storm clouds. yes. You see, I read you perfectly. I read you perfectly. Yeah, that would be so gorgeous, wouldn't it? No, I think you for sure go for a statement piece. And even though it's a really small room, I think people can feel really timid about large scale pattern in a small room. But I think absolutely I disagree. I think big scale prints can look really dramatic and great in a tiny room. They can kind of really take it. I think that's what I want to do. My concern is, I suppose, that if I choose a big floral print, that it's all going to actually look quite traditional and Victorian. And I want it to look sort of, you know, I want punk chintz or, you know. Punk chintz. That's what I want. So listen, punk chintz, are we going flowers or are we going jungle Well, I'm wondering about jungle, but I'm never sure about jungle. You know, in a North London terrace, is it going to look weird if I've got, you know, monkeys and banana leaf leaping about all over the place? I think you can get away with it because I think you live in London. Uh, that's what I kind of feel. I love I love a bit of jungle and a bit of tropical. But I, for me, when I live in the woodlands of East Sussex, it doesn't quite work. Interesting. For me, it just looks weird. But I think in an urban city, you can you don't you think? I think you can get away with whatever. And you know, this is your office. This is your escape. You know, you could play on that and make it feel quite. Escapist. There is, you see, there's that other lovely print, actually, which I was looking at yesterday by Pearl Lowe. She's done for Woodchip and Magnolia and it's Wisteria. 
And I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll just have wisteria hanging around my window. That might be quite nice. Obviously, I'm going to have to put some time into this research. Nothing is easy, is it? So uh, I'll keep you posted. Well, I think we'll galvanise the whole of our listeners and everybody on the Great Indoors Facebook podcast group to start posting pictures of patterns that you think Kate should put in her office. And I think um, we could have some fun with that. Okay, no parrots. Punk chintz and no no parrots and no leopards. So, you know, it can be kind of jungle, but it's jungle foliage, not jungle wildlife. Well, I'm going to be here nudging you all the way to step away from the ticking stripe and into the punk chintz. I love it. And I can't wait to see what you come up with. Well, do keep your style queries coming and let me know what you think about some punk chintz ideas. Just send an email or a voice note to thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com and we'll see what we can do for your style dilemma. And of course, you'll find more links and pics and details in the show notes and on our blogs, where you can find mine at sophierobinson.co.uk and Kate's is madaboutthehouse.com. And a special thanks this week to Sam, who went onto the Apple Podcasts app to say, first review I've ever written, and I've listened to many a podcast. I've binge listened to every episode. There's only a few left, and now I'm pacing myself as I don't know what I'll do when I have to wait two weeks for each new episode. I love how informative Sophie and Kate are, love that they share their extensive knowledge and expertise, and an episode with them makes me feel I've just spent an hour with great friends. You have me giggling and laughing out loud, and this is just the antidote needed to get through yet another lockdown. A massive thank you for keeping me sane. And can I just say, that's a slightly nicer review you than last week's which said we were two mad English women arguing about yellow (laughs) (laughs) yes a massive thank you Sam doing the show is certainly one of the things that keeps us sane and I can't tell you how much it means to hear that it's keeping all your spirits up too thanks to all of you who listen and keep our spirits up as well and of course to our producer Kate Taylor of Feast Collective and next time we'll be talking to the designer Nicola Harding about the design process spring will be sprung and we'll be full of new ideas tune in then and we'll see you in the great indoors don't you know that one (laughs) Every time a winner. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. Uh, Don't you know that one? North, east, south, west, little uh, nun. (laughs) (laughs) How long have we been recording by remote? It's about 10 years. You'd think we'd be able to do it by now. I've actually lost it. I can't believe I'm in charge of schooling my child and I can't even read the script. Oh, my God. Right. Okay. Okay. This is fine. I'm professional. I'm just going to knock this one out. It's fine. Mnemonic. Right.